if you want to, you can turn to Mark chapter 1, uh, either in your Bible or your phone or wherever it is you use, or you can just look up on the screen because I think we stick them up there now. But I can't see that way, so <laughs> I'm turning. This, of course, follows immediately after the baptism of Jesus uh, we talked about two weeks ago. Uh, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, you have sent your word like the snow and rain, and it will not return empty. Uh, may it accomplish your purpose and be effective in fulfilling your goals among us. Instead of thorns and byers, produce cypress and myrtle among us. Make us strong in Christ as we seek you, forsaking our way and our wicked thoughts, because your way and your thoughts are higher and greater than ours. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Young Bruce Wayne and his parents were walking out of the theater and through a dark alley one night when they were accosted by a man, a man with a gun. And as he pointed the gun at the Wayne family, he said, Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? No one knows exactly what he meant when he said that. It, the people, the family was shocked, but what took place next left an indelible mark upon the young Bruce Wayne as his parents were shot before him. That night, young Bruce Wayne was invited to a dance with the devil, a dance that did not last just that one evening, just that one moment, but a dance that he would find would be resumed decades later in profound fashion. We don't talk a whole lot about the devil, but sometimes we need to. And this is one of those times when we need to, because the text thrusts, it, thrusts him in our face. As we are reminded of where this takes place, I mentioned that the baptism of Jesus took place, and so we have water. We have the, the Spirit had descended upon Jesus, visible to uh, John the baptizer, we see that the Father spoke and revealed his identity as his beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. And if we stopped right there, we would think that all would be well. Because here we have the Messiah. The, the clouds had broken. Heaven had come down. The God's pleasure and delight had been declared for all to hear that were there. And the Spirit rests upon him to move him forward in the accomplishment of God's purposes. Surely everything is gravy from now on. This is intended, I think, to be reminiscent of creation as well as Israel's uh, departure from Egypt. For both of those have these ideas. Of, there's water that takes that is present. There is God speaking. Uh, there is the manifestation or the reality of, of these people, Adam and then Israel, being God's sons. All went right in those instances, right? But we see here that Mark 
says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This is not what we would expect to hear. He's not driving Jesus to Jerusalem, which is the place most likely that we would think he would go. He's not even driving him to Rome. He drives him farther into the wilderness, to places that were more secluded, places that were more dangerous than hanging out by the Jordan. What was in store for Jesus at the declaration of his glory, at his baptism, was not a party, was not a celebration, but rather a time of greater deprivation. It's ironic, in a sense. The beloved son, in whom the father is well pleased, this is not speaking of the rebellious son, with whom the father is angry. This is the beloved son, the precious son, the the well-pleasing son, but he's being treated as if he is being banished, he's being expelled, he's being rejected. For those are some of the connotations of that word of being cast out, being thrown out. It can be used to be disowned. He is being cast out for us. Let's keep that in mind as we think more of what is going on in in this uh, very short text that we have this morning. And so the Spirit moves him into the wilderness, deeper and away from people. And And then Mark says that he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And so while Jesus was mostly alone, we might think, there was someone else who was there there whose whose presence was very important, and that is the devil. Jesus is being tempted or tested. You see, that word that is used has both of those meanings. It really depends upon the context of what's happening. And also the context of who is doing it is very important. God tests. He tests the heart. We see that in Deuteronomy 8, and we'll get back to Deuteronomy 8 in just a little bit. Satan, on the other hand, does not test, but Satan tempts. He's not looking to see what's in your heart, but Satan is more inclined to bring out the sin in your heart, to get you to stumble and to disobey. This is fitting for Jesus. We see in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, a a passage like this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so part of the the reality that we see in the, the letter to the Hebrews is this Jesus whose mission it is is to bring together many brothers and to make them perfect in the, the enjoyment of their salvation, he's going to be made perfect through suffering. And here we see some of that suffering that is about to take place, some of that affliction that is about to take place as Jesus, in terms of his humanity, is made perfect. 
This is reminiscent. Again, I already mentioned Genesis, but now we go back to, to Genesis in a sense. Adam, whom Luke in his genealogy ends with Adam, the Son of God. Adam was tested. Adam was tempted. Adam failed. And then was expelled from the Garden of Eden. We see as well, Israel, declared to be God's firstborn son in places like Exodus 4, Hosea 11, was tested, tempted in the wilderness, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He was revealing whether or not they would obey him. And we see that one of the great tests was when they sent the spies into the land. And the spies came back, and all of them but two. So ten said, oh, there's giants in the land. Oh, we can't go in there. There's no way that the God who destroyed the entire Egyptian army can help us take that land. (laughs) But Caleb and Joshua said, we serve the living God. Let's go. And the people listened to the ten as opposed to the two and spent the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness until that generation died off. And so we have to understand the temptation of Jesus within that context, that theological context, that He is going to do what they have failed to do. But He does it not for Himself, but for His people. Mark, unlike Matthew and Luke, seems to be very unconcerned with any of the details of Jesus' dance with the devil in the desert. Whether it was in the moonlight or the bright of day, it didn't matter. He just kind of doesn't even mention what happened. But I want us to think... I want us to realize that Jesus dances with the devil not as a lover, but like two men dancing in the ring, seeking victory over each other. This is the dance of conflict, of battle. And only one can emerge victorious. Mark is writing to a persecuted community. Okay. We, we need to keep that in mind. Uh, he's writing to Christians who are currently in the midst of being tried, of being tempted, because they're in the capital city of the Roman Empire, which at that point is run by a psychopath by the name of Nero. A psychopath who has decided to make Christians uh, the scapegoat for his insanity and his destructive uh, acts within Rome itself and has now begun to persecute them and put them to death. We should see that the favor of God did not exempt Jesus from such conflict. And how much more us? Uh, Let us not presume or have this idea that because we're loved of God, which we are, 
Uh, because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, which we are, that, that somehow means that we get a pass on trial and temptation. But we see that if we are with Jesus by faith, then we too will be encountering trial and temptation, testing. Jesus danced with the devil not uh, so that we wouldn't have to do that ourselves, but so that we could prevail after him. And so the first thing I want us to understand from this text is that even the Son of God is tempted and, and tested like his brothers. There's more I want us to see from this text. That while the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness, we see that there is an enemy. There he finds Satan. Satan, that old serpent that deceived Eve in the garden, which Revelation 12 declares to be not just a serpent, but a dragon. A little more fearsome when we think about it in terms of a dragon, isn't it? Yet there it is. He is the same one who stormed the heavenly council and wanted to destroy Job. That same Satan, that same devil, is here in the wilderness. Now, uh, unlike Matthew and Luke, there's no statement that the temptation comes to a conclusion. And it does mention 40 days, but it sort of mentions this in an open, open-ended sort of uh, way that he's in the wilderness 40 days, not necessarily that his temptation is 40 days. The dance would continue beyond his time in the wilderness. Some of you know who Bruce Wayne is. Some of you may not know who Bruce Wayne is. Uh, Some of you may know that the man who shot his family ended up becoming the Joker later on. And as the Joker, he would continue to use that phrase. And there's one one instance where he crashes a party and he again has a gun and he says, ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight. That's when he says, I don't know what it means, it just sounds cool. But really what he's doing is he's inviting people to mess with him, to mess with evil, and to see if they can survive. And so Joker and Batman would engage in a lengthy battle for the heart and soul of the city that they called Gotham. It was not one event, but it was something that kept happening repeatedly because for a while these uh, men could not conquer one another. The dance continued. And so it is. The dance does continue in a way. Jesus engaged his great spiritual enemy on the field out there in the, in the desert. I think part of what he wants, Mark wants his audience to recognize is that Jesus was not coming against Rome with an army. That Jesus' greatest foe unlike what many Jews thought, was not Rome. That the the real foe, the real enemy, was really the evil one. 
and that Jesus had to do battle with Him for us. Not just that, but that it wasn't just for the church, but also Rome needed to know. Because this letter is sent most likely, this gospel is sent most likely to the Christians in Rome, and so they could point to it and say, see, look at this. Jesus is not interested in overthrowing Caesar. What Jesus is interested in is overthrowing the evil one. From rescuing his people from spiritual darkness. That we are no threat to the social order. We are no threat to the Roman Empire. At least not directly. We need to know this. And we need to know that this enemy continues. Revelation 12 tells us that the dragon became furious with the woman who most likely represents Israel and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so the dragon continues to make war upon those who are faithful to Jesus. This is what happens. This is what's taking place all around the world that we see. But we see that God's adversary is not able to defeat God directly, and therefore we see him attacking through humanity. It's been that way since the beginning. Satan couldn't hurt God, so what does he do? He seeks the one who is made in the image of God, Adam and Eve, and deceives them, trying to bring ruin upon all of humanity and trying to ruin the earth that God has made. What do we see? Satan coming against uh, the people of Israel, the, the Son of God, so that they will sin, and therefore the, the, the blessing of God will no longer rest upon them, but the wrath of God would come upon them, just as Balaam uh, gave advice to the kings. And that's what Satan does. Still does it. So we see in the tale of Batman and Robin that at some point... Uh, not Batman and Robin, Batman and Joker, that uh, Joker decides that he can destroy Batman by destroying the one he cares about, Vicki Vale. And so we have this interesting six strange dance uh, as she's drugged and he's waiting for Batman to come and attack him in the hopes that he can destroy, finally, the big black bat. We see that Satan stirred up in the time of Mark, stirred up Nero in Rome against the church. We have to remember that the government is not our ally and the government is not our enemy. It is neither of those two and both of those two, depending on any particular moment in time or place. Our conflict, brothers and sisters, is not against flesh and blood. But as Paul tells the Ephesians, it is against spiritual powers and principalities. And so uh, there's a question that comes to me as I think about this, is that are you fighting the right enemy? If you are, are you employing the right defenses and the right weapons against that enemy? Let's back up for a second. 
see the larger picture in which spiritual warfare takes place. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and we trust Him to uh, His sacrifice on the cross as payment for our sins, if we believe that, we are united to Jesus Christ. And by virtue of that spiritual union with Jesus Christ, we therefore receive His power, and we also receive His armor in order to fight. All that is His becomes ours. And so spiritual warfare must be seen in that light, that we are not intended to make our own way, but we are intended really to fight in what Jesus provides for us. And what He provides for us is Himself, the very one who withstood the temptation of the evil one. Okay? This leads British pastor Mike Pivolacci. I can never pronounce his name correctly. I think it's Pivolacci. This is the glory of the gospel. Not that God takes us out of the world, but that he gives us his strength to walk through the pain of the world. He gives us strength to walk through the conflict that we find in the world as opposed to plucking us from it. And so, uh, just as Batman does not seek to uh, fight the Joker without all of his gadgets and tools and his body armor, so you too, like a Roman soldier, should not seek to fight apart from the armor that Jesus provides. It's not a physical belt, but it is the belt of truth. We hear about Righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but the righteousness of Jesus that protects us from accusation. We hear of the shield of faith that extinguishes the the fiery darts of the enemy in order to defend us. The helmet of salvation because he tries to intrude upon our thoughts and make us think that we are lost and we need salvation to protect our minds. And the feet showed with the gospel so that we're steady in the midst of conflict. No Roman soldier would enter into battle without these things because that would make him incredibly vulnerable. And Jesus does not want us to enter into conflict without these things. Paul does not want us to enter into conflict without these things, but we are told to put them on, he says in Ephesians 6. Wear the full armor of God. Don't pick and choose pieces of it for today, and maybe tomorrow, I'll, as if it's a designer outfit. You know, well, today I think I need the shoes and the sword of the Spirit. But tomorrow, I'll wear the helmet of salvation and the belt of truth. All are needed for this battle in which we engage. We dance with the devil in the pale blue uh, moonlight in part by confronting the lies. That's part of why we have truth. He speaks lies to us, half-truths, just as he spoke to Eve in the garden. We're to confront lies. We're to kill temptation. We're to flee other temptations. 
There's some that are geographic, and, he, and Paul says, flee those desires. Run away from them. In other words, we're to know who we are. We're to know, therefore, whose we are, Christ's. We're to know our weaknesses, but we're also to know his great provision. Paul says this in a slightly different way to the Romans in the 13th chapter of his letter. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Same idea. If we're putting on the armor of God, we're putting on Jesus. By faith, we're united to Him and we're putting Him on as our new clothing garb. So what I really want you to recognize from this part is, is that the, the primary enemy of Jesus and therefore his people is Satan, the evil one. But Satan and Jesus weren't the only two that were out in the wilderness. Jesus was not alone with them. Mark mentions some others. And he was with the wild beasts. You probably didn't expect that one. <laughs> Maybe a certain disciple or two or three uh, hanging out there. But no, he says he was with the wild animals. Now, some people, uh, I believe mistakenly, sort of interpret this as, um, as if he's in the Garden of Eden again. And nothing could be further from the truth because these are wild animals. What he's doing is that he's experiencing the consequences of Adam's sin. These are not domesticated animals. Uh, these are not uh, tame animals. These are wild animals. These are beasts, not subject to humanity. And this is part of the trial that Jesus endures. He not only endures the, the temptations from the evil one, the enemy, but he also endures the curse. Jesus here in the wilderness is vulnerable to attack by the predators that were alive there. There were mountain lions, bears, cheetahs, Leopards, to name but a few. These were predators that easily could have attacked him. We live on this side of the cross, okay? We live after the cross. And so Jesus has already triumphed, okay? But the, the effects of his triumphs are not yet fully seen as we see in Hebrews 2, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, that all of his enemies are not yet his footstool, and he has not yet handed over the kingdom to the Father. So we live and we dance in a fallen, hostile world that is set against us. And so when we read in the, in the news about church bombings in Sri Lanka, when we read about what Bokum Haram is doing in Nigeria, uh, when we read about what the, the uh, Chinese government is doing to churches, 
that should not surprise us. In fact, Peter said, do not be surprised when these troubles come upon you. We still live in a world uh, that is marked by the curse and by an enemy who hates Jesus. But that's not all we see. We also see that the angels were ministering to him, Jesus. The implication here is that during his time in the wilderness, it's interesting that uh, in the temptation accounts, uh, Satan quotes Psalm 91, but Mark is alluding to the fact that Psalm 91 is actually um, being fulfilled. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Go on their hands, they will, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And what Satan's temptation to Jesus was, was not simply to believe that that was taking place and was being fulfilled, but to risk his life. Okay? Throw yourself off the temple, and surely the angels will come and rescue you. He was being asked to test God. Okay? That's different than experiencing uh, the protection of God, which is what Psalm 91 is about. We see that Moses was sustained while he fasted 40 days on Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. Okay, we've got a map of that in case we forgot where that whole fun thing was. All right, we've got, and this is going to be important in a moment as well. Mount Horeb all the way down here in the Sinai Peninsula. Okay, this is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Okay, but in the process of receiving the Ten Commandments, he's alone on the mountain for 40 days with no food and no water, and God sustains him through the course of that time. We also see Elijah before he goes from, from Israel all the way down to Horeb, which would be a 40-day journey. Before that, he's hiding out under the broom tree. We've got one of those in case you don't know what a broom tree looks like. So he's hiding out under that. And the text from 1 Kings 19 mentions that the angels continually provided him with food to, to prepare him for that journey. And we think we've got... Uh, I can't remember if it's Rembrandt or somebody. Do we have one of those? I forgot. But we see that God provided for Moses and Elijah, and in similar fashion, he's going to provide for Jesus. The angels deaconed. Yes, deaconed. That's the word that's there, the word we get deacon from. Uh, they performed table service or waited on Jesus. When you think of what a deacon is, part of what a deacon should, should come to mind is someone who waits tables. And so uh, we had our uh, resurrection brunch last week, and who was cooking out there? The deacons, doing a lot of service. So uh, way to go, deacons. Okay, You're doing your name. Okay. Jesus was sustained, not, now, here's the thing, not only by the Spirit, now think about that for a second. 
Does the Spirit of God need any help to sustain Jesus? No. And yet, here are the angels serving Jesus in his time of need. Uh, In a sense, God's sharing his glory with these angels to a degree and enabling them and allowing them to be the means by which he himself sustains the Son. Help doesn't always come in the way we expect it sometimes. But he's being sustained by the angels while he's tested, while he's uh, tempted. In Hebrews 1, we see not the same word, but in Mark, we have the verb, and in Hebrews 1, we have the noun. Are not they all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So the author of Hebrews writes about angels and puts them within a context of servants for those who inherit Salvation. Don't know what that means. Or rather, the, how it manifests itself. But the scripture does declare uh, that the, the angels serve God's people. Protect them, sustain them in some way that we cannot fully understand or know at this particular point in time. But we are to know that we are not alone when we are tested. We're not alone when we are tempted, but that Jesus provides the Holy Spirit. Jesus also provides angels to sustain us and help us to serve. And so I think the third thing we ought to learn from this is that the Father provides for those He tries. He doesn't stick you in a test alone. but that He sends the Spirit and He sends other blessings to sustain you in the midst of that trial. For instance, I was talking to one of my brothers at Presbytery and going through a hard time. And I said, you know, man, I'd, I'd really have a hard time in that. I'd really struggle. And he goes, "Uh, I don't know, I'm fine. Uh, It doesn't seem to bother me. I said, well, you know, I remember years ago a friend of mine when speaking to me when we were in our our two and a half years of uh, transition. And he said to me, Steve, I couldn't make it more than a month in that kind of situation. Um, So I said to this other friend the other day, I said, Thinking about a trial is very different than being in the trial. The grace of God comes to us when we're in the trial, not what we're thinking about a potential trial. (laughs) We're just being anxious for, for things that we shouldn't be anxious about. And so, really, God is sustaining my brother, my friend, through the midst of his trial. And I know that he's sustaining him because he is in a place 
where he should be panicking, and he's not. He should be scared, and generally he's not. He's trying to be faithful and serve. He's not alone in the midst of his suffering. And neither are we when we are in the place of suffering. The Father provides for those that he tries. So that night in the alley led to a long conflict between two men vying for supremacy and the heart of a city. The dance made Batman, though a child of privilege, one who would use his resources to fight for others against one who came to kill and steal. Whoever thought you'd find the gospel in Batman, huh? <laughs> but Jesus is not a fictional character like Batman. Jesus is the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And yet, the Holy Spirit drove Him into the wilderness to be tested, to be tried, to dance with the actual devil, to regain His people, and to regain their paradise. And when we're joined to Jesus by faith, we share in both His victory and in that conflict. Joined to Jesus, we will have all that we need to stay and stand in that fight. It really is about who you're following. And that is Mark's point. Who are you following? He's telling the Roman Christians and you and me, you are following the one who withstood the devil. Not one who withstood an earthly army, but who withstood the devil. And that should give us hope and confidence. Let's pray. Father, too often we live in fear of the evil one. And it makes sense. He's bigger than us. He's stronger than us. He's smarter than us. But Jesus is greater. Help us to remember in those moments of trial, to remember in those moments of temptation, that Jesus is greater. That he has withstood the worst that the devil can dish out and prevailed. Help us to remember who we follow when we find ourselves in that secluded spot, when we find ourselves being tested, tried, and tempted. And help us to remember not just Jesus, but that we're united to Jesus and share in all his blessings in the midst of trial. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.